Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour here on MPB Think Radio. This is a partnership between the Mississippi Arts Commission and MPB Think Radio, where we talk to to artists, creatives in Mississippi about the work that they do. It's a deeper dive into the incredible and excellent work uh, that is coming out of Mississippi in the arts. And today I have the pleasure of having with me Dr. Ebony Lumumba, who is Deputy, I mean, department chair of I'm the, the deputy. No, I'm joking. Deputy chair. I was the deputy. <laughs> I was like, uh, it sounds de- so important. It does sound important, it right? It does. Uh, the department chair of English and Modern Languages at Jackson State University and is associate professor of English. Welcome to the show, Ebony. Hi, David. How are you today? I'm doing really well. Thank you for having me. This is cool. This is a, a great show to have you on. And, you know, you're I know you're kind of coming off of the festival, which we're going to oh, talk I'm about the, the 50th anniversary yeah. of the Phyllis Wheatley Poetry Festival. If, if you weren't there, you missed quite a moment of history. Oh, yeah. We'll dive into that. But, Ebony, I kind of want to start from the beginning. Let's let's let listeners know a little bit about yourself. Um, you sure. grew up here in Jackson, but but start with kind of you know, what your what your life was growing up and what sort of your first interactions with the arts was. Oh, wow. And let's take a peek into who Ebony Lumumbo became. Who I am. Yeah. Well, I did. I grew up here in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, and I often tell folks I was bred and buttered <laughs> right here. I love that. Yeah, in, in Jackson. And so I developed a very early love for literature. Mm. I have always loved to read. Now, granted, I'm from a generation where TV did go off (laughs) at a certain time and cartoons did not last for 24 hours. And so there was a lot of downtime, (laughs) you know, you had to be in when the streetlights were on. And that was, you know, prime time to really let your imagination fly. And that's what books did for me. And so um, as with, I think most people, there are limitations on what we had access to um, economically and even socially, but books took me everywhere I wanted to go. I remember being a member of the Scholastic Book Club. And so I felt ve- I felt like the deputy then, right? I yeah. felt very special then because they had this children's program where you would receive books every week. And so in my mind, it was like a race. Like I had to finish the books of the current week before, before the next you- week's books came <laughs> yeah. and you would get these cool cloth sacks to keep your books in. Wow. Um, and so my parents... Um, really inaugurated that love for literature as an art. And so naturally I started to write my own little stories and, you know, use up my parents' staples and type in paper. I still have some of those books. What were they about? Oh, anything, right? Obviously, you know, I was at the center of them. I was my own star uh, in those books. But they would just be about little girls doing things that were familiar to me or things that I wanted to do. Oh, wow. Um, and so I remember I remember writing about family. I remember writing about, like, crushes and, you know, yeah. love and that sort of thing. I remember writing about um, flowers and, like, wow. nature because yeah. that's such a huge part of the experience of growing up in Mississippi. Absolutely. Um, and so I loved, also loved 
drawing. And so I was my own illustrator. I, love that. I was author illustrator. You're just a one-stop yeah. shop. I mean, Renaissance kid, really. I love that. Um, but again, it was those stories that just really let my set my imagination aflame about, you know, where it was that we were positioned in the world being right here in Mississippi. And I never imagined any limitations on this space or what I can do or who I was. And I really credit my parents for just really stacking the books up yeah. on, you know, my little bookshelf, my little nightstand. And, I, you know, like anyone else, I had my favorites that I would read over. I read, I read Blackbeard so many times. <laughs> really? No, that's kind of creepy. That's amazing. That's actually no, kind of creepy. Okay. Cool. <laughs> I think it's great. But um, it's I, adventure. I, it's adventure, right? Yeah. And so, uh, I mean, and we turned everything into an opportunity to explore. So drain ditches were Ooh, yeah. little, you know, like mountains to climb. Yeah. And when it rained, you had, you know, rivers right down the middle of your backyard. And, um, you know, pine cones were weapons also. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so that that I think really was my first introduction to the arts. And then uh, when I was in. Well, and so I would watch these old movies with my mom and my sister. Um, my dad really loved them as well. And so my, like my favorite movie growing up was Imitation of Life. Wow. Again, yeah. like a really very serious yeah. topic. But um, I also love things like Stormy Weather, just yeah. the, the artistry in that. And so um, My Fair Lady, I really became um, an avid fan of musical theater at a young age because we had like AMC classics. And yeah. these were the, you know, when cartoons were not on, right. these were the things that your parents would let you watch. That in like L.A. law. But... <laughs> I would watch these um, musicals and imagine myself in every role yeah. in West Side Story. Imagine myself in every role of The King and I, you know. And I had the great opportunity to audition and be accepted into the APAC program in the fourth grade. And if I'm remembering correctly, it was you know, my class. Our class was the first group of kids who were in the APAC, the Power APAC then. It's Wells APAC now the Power APAC building all day. So the fourth wow. and fifth grade, we spent the entire day at the school and you had a couple of hours in your in your uh, designated performing arts and then uh, program and then you would do the rest academics and then we would rotate, right? I was a theater, yeah. a theater major right? as an <laughs> eight-year-old. and um, But I also got, we did cycles in music yeah. and dance and visual art. Um, but that theater program just really exposed me to this world of whimsy and wonder and danger and adventure that is the theater, yeah. that is narrative storytelling. So I remember watching the high school students do Antigone when I was wow, yeah. nine years old and I never forgot it. I mean, I was completely captured with uh, Greek mythology at that age <laughs> wow. because I was in this public school program. Yeah. Um, we did Annie as a production that was like going across grades and I played Lily yes. uh, who is a little known character but she's really the star right? yeah she is the star she's the scene <laughs> she stealer she has great accents and yeah. you know uh, so I, I played Lily who's Rooster Miss Hannigan's brother's girlfriend yes right? she, they're all trying to um, scam you know right daddy so. warbucks uh, to get to get his money and to you know kind of double cross Annie but anyways um I learned so much in that program from Miss Wheeler and Mr. Thompson, Mr. Coates and Dr. Simmons. And there were just all of these opportunities 
to be more than you were in your everyday life, which yeah. was fine. But I mean, to really expand those horizons. So we learned about costuming and Commedia dell'arte and, um, you know, makeup design and set design and lighting and all of these things. And then again, we got to learn the magic of the theater. And yeah. so, you know, I fell in love with like Auntie Mame and yeah. all of these really substantial uh, representations of musical theater in the single digits of my age. And so it <laughs> it paired, I thought, really well with my love for literature, that yeah. these stories were now coming to life because right. I saw people acting them out probably in the way that I was with my dolls and, yeah. um, you know, in my bedroom uh, when I was younger. And th- those were really my first influences on the arts. And what I knew is I wanted to be surrounded by some aspect of it. Yeah forever yeah forever and so that's really the life i've been trying to curate so as you headed through high school and then went to college you went Mm -hmm. off to college right i went off did you think you were going to come back where'd you head i i don't think i did think i was coming back and that's probably the story for a lot of mississippi young people that you know we were here we love it we'll come visit at thanksgiving and christmas but we're going to go off into the world especially someone with an imagination that was really as robust and kind of crazy as mine, right? I mean, I was, I wanted to be Auntie Mame, right? Yeah. And, and these sorts of things. So I just thought, I'm going to go into the world. And I went to Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia, had an amazing time. And I majored in English, which underscored um, what had grown into this voracious love of the written word. I mm. mean, you know, if I backtrack a little bit, I was at Chastain Middle School. Um, Miss Allegreza was one of my English teachers, and she let us listen to uh, Why I Live at the P.O. by Eudora Welty, with Eudora Welty actually reading the story. Oh, wow. And if you've ever heard her voice, she has such this this rich, sultry, um, kind of deep register yeah. to her voice that I was really drawn to. And at the time, I was 12, I didn't know who Eudora Welty was outright, but... I recognized the characters and I thought, oh, these crazy country folk, you know, I know people like that. Right. And, and I love that we can write about people that we know about in communities that are familiar to us and it's worthwhile. Yeah. And so, um, you know, that strengthened my love of, of, of writing and of reading. And then I got to high school at Murrah High School. Go Mustangs. Yeah. And oh, my, my English class is there were incredible um, from ninth to 12th grade. But I remember in the 12th grade reading Toni Morrison's Beloved, A Light in August by William Faulkner and Macbeth, you know, by Shakespeare in the same semester. Wow. And being captivated. Yeah. Captivated, really. Um, It was honestly the the women in a lot of those stories and just Mm -hmm. how you could write these very sordid and... Uh, women that were, you know, not ladylike in any stretch of the imagination, but they were still really strong and powerful in a sense. And they were a little evil, some of them. (laughs) And, and, you know, I loved reading about that. I love imagining, you know, what they look like. And I I, I spent my 11th grade year at St. Joe. I'm all over the place. But, um, and I took a mythology class from Cleta Ellington. (laughs) And I remember sitting in her classroom, which was whimsy all unto itself. She had like a a couch, like a love seat (laughs) in her high school classroom, which was magical to me. But I would imagine these mythological, this mythological rather characters looking like me. Oh, wow. And looking like my family and looking like people that I knew, which is not the way that they're illustrated in books. And What do you think inspired that? I think I was able to 
see characteristics that I recognize mm, yeah. in people that I knew and in myself. So, you know, I kind of got what was, you know, irking Clytemnestra and yeah. I understood Athena or Athena, you know, yeah. um, and I wanted to see them looking like the, the heroines in my life, which yeah. were my grandmother, my mother, my sisters, uh, my aunts and, you know, that sort of thing. So, and I got the leeway to do that. And so, you know, fast forward, that's high school into college. There was no other major for me other mm. than English. I I had to read more and I had to be around people that wanted to talk about what yeah. we were reading more and majoring in, in English afforded me that. And so I still have all of my textbooks from college. I still have a lot of my high school um, books that we read, you know, not the textbooks. I did not steal them, Jackson Public Schools. But <laughs> <laughs> I do have my copy of Beloved, Beloved rather, and A Light in, uh, uh, um, a light in August and Macbeth wow. from that 12th grade year. And so it, there were all of these little moments of inspiration throughout my life that told me that if you can write the story, if you can craft the narrative, yeah. you can really build this experience, not only for yourself, but um, for your community and the people that came before yeah. and who will come after you. And I thought that that was the epitome of influence yeah. and, um, you know, worthwhile experience. Well, it's, it's interesting. So you, you said you headed off to be an English major and you mm -hmm. had these big, you know, big imagination, mm -hmm. big dreams. What was the dream when you went to, to college? Oh, and I have a dream? reason I'm going with this. Okay. So I was like, where did you deep digging deep into myself? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, so here's the thing. And I think a lot of, a lot of folks, and it might be community specific struggle with this, that you need to pick this career path that is going to, you know, rest your family out of the clutches of economic turmoil mm. or lack. Yeah. And so I thought, well, I can major in English and still do what I love, but I'll be English pre-law. You know, I'll yeah, go to law yeah. school yeah, and, yeah. and I'll have, a, you know, a good chance at making a well enough living to not have to, you know, go through the some of the experiences I'd, I'd had in my childhood and also help, right, mm. you know, help out. Um, I just wasn't in love with the pre-law track. I, you know, I kept it and I stayed the course and I took these marvelous philosophy classes and I, I took, um, you know, symbolic logic and these sort of things that were supposed to be preparing me for law school and took these language courses that would make me more diverse, um, more diverse. But I always found a way to link those to what I loved about literature. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't leave me alone. And so, um, I did. I applied to law school and I thought that's what I wanted to do. And I worked at this law firm after graduation, sort of prepping myself. But I mean, I had this horrible experience um, after graduation at the law firm that I was working for, kind of doing legal assistant type work. And uh, there was a client there and she was frustrated about something that I had nothing to do with. And But she looked at me and she said, you're worthless. <gasps> You know, just out of her yeah. frustration for whatever had yeah. happened in her yeah. transaction. Yeah. And I mean, you know, to have someone say that to you and look you, you know, sort of yeah. dead and straight in your eye and say that, I thought, well, you know, I know I'm not worthless, but right. this is not worthwhile. No. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app.
Our goal at Everyday Tech is to keep your technology not only working, but working for you. I'm the host, Abram Nanny, and you can join me and my friends Wednesday mornings at 10 on MPB Think Radio, or search Everyday Tech on your favorite podcasting app, or download the MPB Public Media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour here on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, David Lewis, and I'm here with Dr. Ebony Lumumba, who is Associate Professor at uh, of English at Jackson State University, as well as the Department Chair of English and Modern Languages at JSU. <laughs> Welcome back. We just Mouthful. left listeners on edge as we heard this story <laughs> about cliff. kind of what we were uh, and asked, you know, I was like, well, you know, where did you, if you, you know, you went off to Spelman to get a, a, a degree in English. The dream was pre-law, yeah. going to law school. Right. And you had this experience with uh, working in a law firm mm-hmm. and someone just looked at you, this woman in this frazzle and said, you're worthless. Mm-hmm. Knowing that you weren't that, it it impacted your trajectory, right? Oh, 100%. And so I thought, it, it is, this is not, I am not worthless, but this is not worthwhile. Right. To my destiny. Yeah. Um, and so obviously frazzled myself by having had that experience. I messaged my, my best friend and I told her about it, you know. Yeah. And she said, and I said, I, you know, I've got to do something different. This is not it. And she said, well, if you could do anything in the world, what would you do? And the question, it didn't stump me, but I was, no one had ever asked me that. Wow. And we don't often ask ourselves that question. What is it that I would do if there were no limitations? Right. Which I've stolen that by the way. And I ask all of my students, (laughs) right. As they get towards graduation. But I said, well, I would go to Greece and study Greek mythology. You remember yeah. I told you about this like affinity that, and she said, "Okay, do it." Did you do it? And so, well, I've been to Greece, but I did. <laughs> so, I, but then I said, "Well, I, I looked that day. I started looking for uh, Master of Arts programs in yeah. literature where I could actually study literature, which you know, mythology is part of that." And so that day, I started looking into programs. I prepped myself for the GRE uh, because I couldn't afford the prep classes. And I got into um, an MA in English program at Georgia State University, and I did write my master's thesis on Toni Morrison and classical Greek myth. <laughs> yeah, wow. I did, and it. But I, I remember that first day in that first graduate course, and it was a Toni Morrison seminar, and writing in my little journal that it felt like breathing. Mm, wow. Right. So yeah. it was. It was so refreshing and healing and reassuring and natural yeah. to be in that space. And I had never felt that, mm. right, on this on this sort of trajectory to get the job that I needed to get in order to not be in, you know, economic lack yeah. my entire life. It was like following the dream yeah. was more nourishing than I had ever realized. It was a it was a you know, a spiritual type of freedom. Yeah. And so I, I was hooked. It was the first day of class, and I remember writing that in my notebook, which, by the way, I still have. Yeah, of course. And it was onward from there. Yeah. And this unimaginable, building this unimaginably supportive network of other scholars and writers and researchers who were all talking about aspects of literature. I finally felt like I was in my own skin. Yeah. And, you know, it reminded me of that little girl who loved her scholastic book club. Yeah. 20 years before. Well, that's so powerful. Cause you know, what's so interesting, even as you just were saying that, like when I, 
I thought I wanted to be in, you know, I, I studied architecture mm-hmm. and then I started working for a firm. And I remember halfway, th- like my six month review, mm-hmm. they, they looked at me and they said, are you happy? And I, I was happy doing what I, was, I thought I was happy you to do what I was. And they felt like I was distracted. I was like, no, I'm very focused. Like, I'm, you know, I'm a, you know yeah, me, yes. I'm a very you driven. You laser very, focused. Right. <laughs> um, and I got in the car and I just, I broke down. I was mm. like, am I happy doing this? Am I? And I applied to go to get my urban planning degree at JSU, my master's degree. <laughs> and And so I think what's so interesting about that is that What's so beautiful about going to college and having these aspirations, it sets you on this path to continue to find yourself, right? Mm. And part of that journey yeah. is is being turned in a different direction, oh, right? Oh, totally. And and so it's so... Being open to that. Right. It's so, you know, I don't think that you we would have imagined that the poetry festival would have happened oh, in your career when you were thinking about that. Are you kidding? But that path was so intentional, right? And so... Going and getting that master's degree, what was after that? What was, was, would you immediately go get your doctorate or did, did. you do other work? So I went right after I finished the master's, I went literally, I skipped my graduation from my <laughs> master's program because I needed to be in Mississippi to start my doctoral oh, wow. program in literature as well. Um, and I had never been more sure. Yeah. Right. That did not mean I was not nervous. Yeah. Did not mean that I had didn't have these sort of anxieties about performing and doing well and being prepared. But I was absolutely certain that I was on the path to my destiny. Yeah. Um, and this was the way forward. And so that, you know, if I could say anything, I, I'm sure they're not like high school or college students listening. But if you are, <laughs> they, might be, yeah. they might be in the car with their parents. Well, this also comes a podcast. Oh, well, OK. So, yeah. so Podcast Nation. Yeah, they're, they're, they're around. But it was being open to crafting a career that didn't look like anyone else I had ever known. Ooh, wow. Yeah. Because yeah. who need we don't need more of the people that are already doing it. Yeah. We need, you know, innovation to that. And so it's absolutely terrifying. Yeah. But necessary. It is. Yeah. So, you know, you were, so what drew you to go to the program in Mississippi? It's like, you know, headed back, you know, you were like, okay, maybe I'm not gonna, you know, I'm going to visit over Thanksgiving, but now you're, you're more sure, as you said, you're, you feel comfortable in your skin with this, but you're headed back to Mississippi. Right. So I had been living in this huge city, nine, almost 10 years, Atlanta, um, which is huge to someone from Jackson, Mississippi, Right. right. And, um, I felt I applied for programs across the Southeast because one thing that I knew um, is that I wanted to be in the South, study Southern literature with global implications where I felt at home. Yeah. And the South has always been my home and I've always felt an ownership to it um, as a black Mississippian. Right. And so I applied to schools across the Southeast, North Carolina, Georgia, um, Mississippi, that may be it. Maybe Tennessee. I don't remember. But I knew I wasn't leaving the Southeast. Yeah. And I got a couple of full rides, but one was from the University of Mississippi. And I thought, oh, back home. Yeah. Really? And I remember talking to my my parents. And my, my father had a reaction. They were excited, of course, about... You know, the the acceptance and the support and the funding for me and, you know, kind of the affirmation that that represents um, for how much folks are, you know, believe that you can uh, thrive in the program. But my father. But also just like how great you are. Oh, 
Well, you know, he said it, I didn't. But <laughs> my father had a reaction that I didn't expect because when James Meredith was accepted into the University of Mississippi, and I say accepted, you know, using that term very loosely, he was about eight or nine years old. Mm. And he remembers very vividly the 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 extreme um, vile reaction of racists and segregationists when James Meredith made that step in his life. And so all these years, and we had never talked about it because none of us, none of my siblings and I all attended HBCUs. We'd never had this conversation yeah. about what bringing up an institution with this history yeah. meant to our community and then our family. And so um, he was a little hesitant about my acceptance to go into this program, remembering what he had seen on television as a little boy um, when James Meredith uh, started at the University of Mississippi. And it's something that I didn't expect, but it was really a seed planted to to sober me to, you know, what you where you are going, yeah. what you're going back to and what you will be up against for yeah. the for the entirety, really, of your career and what you're trying to do. Yeah. Um, and it's, it was something that I needed. And I was so grateful that he was so honest about his reaction. Mm. I'm like, you know, I don't know yeah. about this, but I trust you and yeah. I believe in you. Um, and there was something necessary about me doing this work, writing and studying and reading and researching about community narratives, yeah. specifically con uh, narratives from the global South community, which tears down the borders of what it means to be Southern or what it means to be the South. And it takes it really into the stratosphere. Right. Yeah. Um, but it was there was something necessary about me doing that in this in my ancestral homeland, which is Mississippi. Yeah. Um, I needed that sort of. Uh, that sort of undergirding to this work that I was about to embark on. And I didn't know what it would look like. Yeah. But the Mississippi backdrop had everything to do with the way that I was able to think about things in that program. So you're, you're at Ole Miss and yep. getting your, your graduate, your doctorate. Mm -hmm. And um, at what point um, are you, what, what point in kind of this timeline does the wealthy fellowship fall into place? Oh, okay. So, Okay, full disclosure. So that fellowship was really for folks who were ready to write their dissertation. Wow. And I was a first-year doctoral student, yeah. like, you know, wet behind the ears. But I told you, you know, Welty had piqued my interest as a preteen, a young girl. And I had studied her at Georgia State University. I took Pearl McCaney's Welty seminar, which, you know, Dr. Pearl is one of the foremost Welty scholars uh, in the world. And so I'd taken her class, uh, which was really a way of going home while I was in Atlanta. Right. You know, yeah. I felt I was like, oh, I'm the Jackson Cianato <laughs> here, you guys. Yeah. Um, and so that fellowship, I saw the announcement for it. And I said, okay, well, you know, I, I'd love to be at home over the summer. Yeah. I'd love to get my feet wet with archival work because at that point, which is, you know, like 12 years ago, uh, well, maybe 12 years ago now researching archives as a literary scholar was just kind of gaining ground. Yeah. And so I really wanted that experience with how to engage this archival material with the type of writing and, and analysis that we do. Yeah. Um, and so I just, I went out on a limb and I applied for it and 
um, there were several folks that I still respect in my career were like, um, it's really not time for you to do that. <laughs> you got some courses to take. You don't know what you're going to write about for your dissertation. But I thought, oh, it's, no, I'm going to apply anyway. Yeah. And I didn't get it. And um, it wasn't necessarily a, a blow to my ego or anything. I thought, oh, well, they were right. I needed yeah. to, to wait around. But um, I got a note, a handwritten note from Suzanne Mars, who is Eudora Welty's official biographer. Wow. Um, and she was on the board um, for the Welty Foundation at the time. And she just thanked me for mm. my application and my perspective, the perspective that I was um, proposing to take in my research and work at the archives. And, you know, she just said, I hope you will consider applying again. Wow. And that floored me. Yeah. Because I knew exactly who Suzanne Mars was. <laughs> I had all of her books and I had been studying her for years and for her to take a moment to write a note to the loser. Like, like I yeah. did not win. Yeah. Um, I thought it was such a tender moment um, that was really an education for me and how I would approach yeah. um, guidance and mentorship and support for other scholars moving forward, you know, who would come after me. And so that was really the nudge that I needed to yeah. make that moment not a defeat, but really an education to be yeah. like, you know, you can do this again. The timing wasn't right. Everyone who told me that was absolutely right. Wasn't your time. Try it again. Mm. And I did uh, the very next year, which I had completed two years, my two years of coursework. So um, I was in a better position yeah. <laughs> to imagine uh, my research and I got it. Um, that was, let's see, 2013. Wow. And exactly 10 years ago. Oh, wow. Look at that. I can't believe it's been that long. And that fellowship really just grew me as a researcher yeah. and a scholar. You know, you think you know how to research, but really going in and, and thumbing through and really being able to put your hands on these sources uh, was incredible. And I remember the staff, the staff, by the way, at MDAH, who many of the folks who were there when I was in fellowship, they retired, but they go back there now yeah. to volunteer. And I see them at other arts events and around the city. And they all still remember me because <laughs> I would literally be there from open to close wow. and wide eyed, just literally giddy, thumbing over things, requesting box after box after box. And they, they were my friends yeah. <laughs> for that summer. Um, I, I mean, we were commemorating Freedom Summer that summer. So there was just a lot of energy in the city that was inspiring yeah. the work that I was doing in the archives. And I just felt so grateful to be in my hometown, to be back in my hometown now yeah. after 12 years, gone away to college, graduate school and um, being in Oxford, be back in my hometown doing work that I thought would expand what people could and would know yeah. about the art community and history here. Um, and so I still have the notes, every yeah. note I took, every note I took uh, during that fellowship. I still use them. I just finished two uh, book chapters on Welty and I always go back to those notes because yeah. those were my first, uh, you know, those are my babies. Yeah. Really the, the way that I was able to look at her photography and her letter correspondence, specifically with Dermot Russell, her agent um, in the 40s. And it was my take. It wasn't me reading what another scholar had surmised or uncovered. It was what I gleaned yeah. from these primary sources. And again, it built my confidence yeah. as a researcher and a writer and a scholar and a teacher um, and a reader. 
This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. at your vehicle, think of MPB. Need to get rid of your ride? Donate it by calling 877-MPB-4-CAR. Need to have some work done on your truck? Listen to AutoCorrect Thursdays at 10, Saturdays at 11. An MPB license plate reminds you that MPB is with you wherever you go. Go to your county office and ask for an MPB car tag. MPB and cars, better together. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to the Arts Hour here on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host today, David Lewis, talking with the remarkable and wonderful <laughs> Dr. Ebony Lumumba about her career in writing and literature, studying it, researching it, writing it. Um, we've talked a lot about how you got to be here, where yeah. you went off and what you learned and then how that landed you back here in Jackson. Mm-hmm. And you do a lot of things in Jackson. I uh, get to. Um, you get to, right? It's a yeah, fun. It's a privilege. It's a, it's a wonderful place to, to do. To Incredible. Work in, in this space. So I want to ask you sort of what, what do you think about the arts and culture community in Jackson today? Oh, gosh. How much time we got? I know, right? <laughs> I feel like the whole episode could be about it. It is. I mean, it's the epicenter yeah. for diverse cultural artistic mm. expression for me and and it started and it's not something that we came to recently it's not newfangled i mean there is a deep long history of writers like you know margaret walker and richard wright and eudora welty and then we have the the new vanguard akisa layman and angie thomas right here right here in jackson mississippi and that says nothing about our visual artists and our music artists and our culinary artists and writers who are doing other sorts of incredible incredible things to merge all of these 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 uh, genres and so it is one of the most um robust places to study the art and see it manifest in real time. Yeah. I mean, our architecture right. is art yeah. here, and it's been preserved yeah. um, in exquisite ways. You can literally see the story of the city through the landscape and through the architecture and through uh, the foodscape yeah. and all of these different expressions. People are just have been consistently and historically so creative. And, you know, some might say that comes from being ignored or experiencing lack that you, I think lack does breed creativity, but boy, has it bred some brilliant creatives right here in my hometown. It really has. It's sort of, you know, bubbling up from Mm -hmm. all places, every crack and it just, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And I think about the work, you know, it's just such excellent work being done, whether it's new stage theater, the the new Briarwood Arts Center with with Fifth Child doing that work or his collaboration with the Mississippi Symphony Orchestra. I mean, yes. And Tania Brown. Yeah. It's amazing. And I think about even like right now, kind of in this moment of what we're experiencing, of course, you know, the, the Picasso exhibit is opening at the Museum of Art. 
was uh-huh. just over there. But even just recently, I want to talk about the festival, the okay. 50th anniversary of the Phyllis Wheatley Poetry Festival. Oh, I yeah. cannot talk enough about it. I want yes. us to get some time in it. Yes. This is such a special moment. Tell let's let's talk about what that was, what oh, the event God. was. And let's talk about some of the moments that happened. So many moments. So just, you know, for brief context, in 1973, Margaret Walker, who at the time was a JSU English professor um, and had an Institute for Black Studies, which was an archive that she started on the campus, decided that we needed to celebrate the 200th anniversary of Phyllis Wheatley's publication, Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral. Um, Now, for folks who do and don't know Phyllis Wheatley, she was the first black woman in this country, the second woman only, to publish a book. And she was an enslaved person when that happened. And it's a book of uh, the most brilliant, classic, erudite poetry. Uh, and so the the feat alone for her to be able to do that was incredible. And Margaret Walker had the genius and the courage to say, 200 years later in 1973, we need to scream this from the mountaintops that this happened. And we do have a foundation and a foremother in black women's literary expression. And it is Phyllis Wheatley. And so she had this festival. She invited amazing so- people, amazing people. She invited Sonia Sanchez and Audre Lorde and, um, uh, you know, Alice Walker and uh, Charlene Hunter. Charlene Hunter Gall. I mean, the list. Mary goes, Emma Graham. Mary Emma Graham was here, and she was she was young yeah. and just upcoming, you know, upstart back then. Really, a mentee of Margaret Walker. Um, just any woman that June Jordan and Mari Evans, all of these women, and they came. Yeah, they came on Margaret Walker's invitation that she wrote on a mimeogram like that her students (laughs) uh, produced there to Jackson, Mississippi. And they had lectures and plenaries and readings and dinners and receptions all in celebration of this legacy of uh, black women writing. Uh, against the odds. And then you and Dr. Robbie Luckett yeah. extended that same invitation back out to the ones who are still with us, so, right? Yeah. This year is 50 years later. And you did it again. And it wasn't just a it wasn't just a replay, a reproduction. No. Cuz we knew it we was, couldn't harness the type of brilliance that she had there. Right, but you took that brilliance, married it beautifully with the brilliance of today yeah. and the brilliance of Thank the upcoming you. generation mm-hmm. and we got the festival. So We got this festival. Who all was there? Oh, goodness. So we invited all of the living um, original participants. We got seven out of the 11 living signed up to come. And so uh, we had video presentations from Nikki Giovanni and Sonia Sanchez present in the building. We had Alice Walker, Charlene Hunter-Galt. We had Tania Stewart. Um, it uh, It was unreal the energy that we were able to harness. And so we know we knew that we wanted those original um, players in the room to commemorate what they had done 50 years ago. But we wanted to bridge the gap and really demonstrate not only the seed of Margaret Walker, but the seed of all of these women who had been here in 1973. And so then we invited uh, the, the contemporary uh, juggernauts, Jasmine Ward, Angie Thomas, Nick Stone, Imani Perry. Um, they came, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Eve Ewing. <laughs> and 
I when I tell you we sent these invitations out not knowing what we would get back, mm-hmm. every single person was like, "Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you for thinking of us. We'll be th-. they were so excited to hear who else was coming that, yeah. you know, we we were giddy, but so were they. And there was so much gratitude bound up in their acceptance. And so they came and we had these intergenerational conversations about the legacy of black women writing across history that I will never ever forget. I mean, to be in the room and hear you and Alice Walker talking about and her to just like kind of, I think she surprised us all at first when she was just like, you need to be planning. You need to be planning for happiness. For happiness. And I don't think any of us were prepared to hear that. I was a gut punch. It was like, because I'm not doing that. And we need it. And then to yeah. turn around and, and finish that with a dance. Oh, we dan- We did the electric slide to Al Green's Love and Happiness because she said that yes. love and happiness were things that we deserved and things yeah. that we could have. Yeah. And it, I'd never heard it put that way. And so she, you know, she kind of quipped, you know, like Al Green says, love and happiness. Yeah. So we wrapped up that session doing the electric slide to Love and Happiness by Al Green with Alice Walker, which, I mean, I saw people move to tears. Yes. Um, Jasmine Ward told me, she said it was like church, Yeah, you know, in terms of just this really cathartic moment of freedom that we had all been thirsty for and to do it in a space that felt safe, where you felt love. People were so generous with their care and gratitude from every volunteer, attendee, student, guest speaker. I mean, the spirit of Love and gratitude was thick. Well, and I love the way that you put it at the end when you said, do we feel watered? That was so beautiful. Like, you know, and we you were, were telling us to take it, put it in a bottle, take a sip from it, and then go <laughs> for it. I thought that was a beautiful illustration. I've never heard well, anybody say you. that, but it was a beautiful illustration of like, and especially in a moment like that where you don't want to, you're, you're so sort of bewildered to be in the moment yeah. almost yeah. and sort of like trying to sort of like shove in every nugget that you can, but to like rest in it and be like, okay. It's yours to yeah. have. I mean, we live in a in a time where we're we're grasping at taking selfies and taking pictures to capture right. moments. And sometimes we're not present when we're yeah. doing that. And so for me, I thought I want to I don't want to walk away from this not having been present, not having this personal, intimate moment and experience that I had at this festival be part of my for the my memory and my heart forever. Yeah. So that's the only analogy I could come up with. We needed to bottle it up. Oh yeah, and it was beautiful. And now so did I hear correctly that it will be available? Some of these panels will be available to watch at the Smithsonian or something? Yeah. So, I mean, the Margaret Walker Center, who was at the helm of the planning and execution of the festival, um, it's an archive. Great. And so we've got video documentation that you were there. You didn't have to take your own. Videos. <laughs> um, but those will be accessible through our archive and NAMOC, the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. They were one of our major sponsors, along with the Mellon Foundation. And so they made it possible for us to submit the the, the fact that this happened with some video recordation. And we, we had... Uh, photo journalist there. We had the original photographer, Roy Lewis. Yes, he was from '73. I'm like, he's just the coolest. He, he was, was so moving cool. faster than I was, yes. getting every shot you can imagine. He was in every space. He was in every space. I don't know how he was doing it. <laughs> I mean, he was cloning himself, I, I think. And they had an ex- exhibition of his photography. And it's still up in Johnson Hall at Jackson State University, an exhibition of the original 1973 uh, photos that he took of wow. those women who were there. I mean, there's a, one of Nikki Giovanni standing in front of Tougaloo's gospel choir oh, reciting poetry. It's just 
really magical. So that'll be up all month. I hope folks take the opportunity to go out yes. and come to campus and see it because it's incredible. It's probably a great thing to do over the Thanksgiving holidays. Oh, yeah. You, know, you got family and the campus is open during that week. That's go exactly by right. Yeah, come by, see the exhibit. It, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's another once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Yeah. If you miss the festival, you don't have to miss that. So, you know, you're kind of coming. You know, what a special moment. I Actually, I, let's talk a little bit, too. You, you were able to get both the chair of the National Endowment for the Arts and the Humanities, both in that space, in conversation with Miriam McGram. Yes. With Alice Walker sitting on the front on row. On the front row. And uh, Monique Davis beautifully moderated mm -hmm. it. And then mm -hmm. two two Did. seats down for me was, um, there was somebody else Tania on the Tania Stewart. Well, Tania Stewart was yep. there. And then there was one more. Was it, um, who sat in? Joanne Gabin. Was it Paula Giddings? Paula Giddings was there. Yep, yes. she sure was. So oh my I, gosh, Paula Giddings. How did I forget like, to mention Paula Giddings was there? What was so special about the festival was that not only were people like you're, you had these amazing keynotes, but everybody that was a keynote went to the other keynote. They went to the other keynote presentations. Which is a, a, a mark on the quality of the programming. I mean, they stayed. And they stayed. They stayed. That was so special to, to end it with that, such a, a great moment with yeah. that, and them all be sort of enamored in They that. stayed and they expanded their networks. I mean, in their sister circles, it was, I mean, they exchanged the ones who didn't know each other or just didn't have access to each other before, exchanged phone numbers. They took, photos together i mean hopefully we see their projects coming out of this things that they will do together or or write about about their shared experience and so that's what i mean there was yeah. literally so much generosity from every single person who showed up at the the festival well it was an amazing event congratulations on the success thank of that you, as we're you. sort of wrapping up i want to kind of get yeah. a couple of rapid fire questions what are you reading currently I am reading Let Us Descend by Jesmyn Ward, and I'm reading it with a group of uh, gentlemen who are incarcerated at Parchman Penitentiary. Yeah, we haven't even, I mean, gosh, we have to have you back because we haven't even talked about I'll the work back. you do with the I Humanities Council. I mean, <laughs> I feel like there's like a laundry list of incredible work that you do that we haven't even tapped yeah. into, but what are you excited about reading next? I'm excited. Oh, what am I excited about reading next? There's so much great stuff coming out. Um, I think I'm probably excited about that's a tough that's a tough question i'm excited about so much okay well we can go into another one yeah. what who, who is sort of a rising star that you're kind of inspired by especially in mississippi or even a student maybe oh i'm ex i'm inspired by so many of my my students and i hope i get i hope i tell them that enough um jamila minix mm. is an author she's originally from alabama she's in dc now but uh she wrote moon um moonrise over new jessup okay. uh and she is we're working together to have a, a a black writers tour of HBCUs, and oh, so amazing. I'm really inspired. That was her idea. I'm inspired by that beautiful um, dream, and can't wait to see it come to fruition. Well, thank you for being on the show, Ebony. Yeah. Where can people follow you? Oh, where can you find? You can just come to Jackson State, and take a <laughs> and take a class. I'm I'm kind of off the grid, but good. I'm very easy to find on campus. If you want to talk. Books, literature, art, Jackson. I'm always there for that. Well, thank you for being with us and joining us on the Arts Hour. Thanks We're going to have to have me. you back because there's a lot more to talk yeah, to. Yeah, have me back. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners. So if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. 
Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart devices podcasting platform.